This is the Rocky Mountain Review for Thursday, February 11th, 2021. I'm your host, Coda Babcock. And I'm Ivy Winfrey. And you're listening to KCSU Fort Collins. Happy almost Valentine's Day. On today's show, Ellie Shan will be updating you on campus news, and then I'll be delivering local news. After that, we'll be hearing from KCSU Sports Director Dixon Lawson, and Ivy will be speaking to Rick Parker about the annual Loveland Rotary Club Rubber Duck Race. Then, Coda will be delivering some national news, and we'll be hearing Ellison Hubbard's new podcast. And he'll be telling you a bit about Ellison and his show's view of sports. After that, I'll be giving new information on COVID-19 statistics and stories. To conclude the show, Coda will be giving some updates on technology, and I'll be telling you about the weirdest stories I've found recently. Let's move right into campus and local news. Hey guys, it's Ellie Shannon here with KCSU, and I'm happy to be reporting on the Rocky Mountain Review again. We're almost done with the fourth week of the semester, and as I mentioned last Tuesday, COVID testing is now available in Moby Arena's parking lot, in the MAC gym, and at the Veterinary Teaching Hospital on South Campus. These tests are now available to all students, faculty, and staff. The Rams volleyball team kicked off their much-anticipated season at Moby Arena this past week. Unfortunately, the Rams lost to Air Force Academy for the first time since 1995. COVID restrictions are still being enforced at games. CSU's Kara Neth of College News reported that CSU's three campuses fuel almost 23,000 jobs in Colorado and more than 237.74 million in state income and sales tax revenue annually. CSU's system is an important factor in Colorado's workforce. Thanks for joining me with your campus news. Tune in next week to Tuesday's episode of the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Ellie Shannon, and you're listening to KCSU on 90.5 FM. Hello there. My name is Ivy Winfrey, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. This is your local news for today. An 8th Judicial District Judge has ruled that Fort Collins unconstitutionally prosecuted a Fort Collins man for violating the city's camping ban when he had nowhere else to sleep. According to J.C. Marmaduke at the Coloradoan, Judge Julie Cuntsfield ruled in favor of Adam Weimold and the ACLU, which represented Weimold in his appeal of a 2018 camping ticket. Field's ruling does not strike down Fort Collins' camping ban, but it does raise questions about enforcement in cases where the city's shelters are full or a person faces circumstances that prevent them from staying at shelters overnight. Fort Collins Police Services officer ticketed Weimold during the early morning of September 11, 2018, after finding him asleep in his car at the Pooter Rest Area off Interstate 25 in Prospect Road. Weimold was homeless at the time and working as a manager of Catholic Charities Homeless Shelter in Fort Collins. The shelter rules prohibit employees from staying there or fraternizing with shelter guests. Because of shelter population overlap, he also couldn't stay at Fort Collins Rescue Mission. Both shelters were also full that night, according to court records. The ACLU then helped Weimold fight the ticket, appealing up to the 8th Judicial District Court. In legal proceedings, the city refuted the notion that Weimold had no choice but to car camp in Fort Collins, arguing that he could have driven outside city limits or stayed at a homeless shelter in in Loveland. They also argued Weimold's situation was voluntary because he stated he was sleeping in his car to save money as he paid off credit card debt. The ACLU has argued that this ruling means that Fort Collins Police Services cannot enforce the camping ban in situations similar to Weimold's case. 
where the defendants had no other place to sleep. However, Fort Collins Police Chief Jeff Sabota said that this ruling does not prevent them from enforcing the camping ban or any other cases. It only applies to Weimold's specific case, adding, quote, The Fort Collins Police Services conducts enforcement in accordance with ordinances and statutes. The agency has and will continue to adapt as laws change through legislative and judicial decisions in order to respect the constitutional rights of those we serve. Our focus remains on partnering with our community members to provide safety and service for all, including investing in local programs that support people experiencing homelessness, end quote. FCPS spokesperson Kate Kimball said the city has not decided if it will appeal the ru ruling. Colorado Governor Jared Polis announced that Colorado will be getting thousands of more COVID-19 vaccines over the next three weeks. According to Molly Bohannon at the Coloradoan, Polis announced during a Tuesday press conference that he was informed via a call with the White House that Colorado would be receiving 27,000 additional doses over the next three weeks, or approximately 9,000 doses per week. He also announced a new federal program in which community health clinics can receive doses directly from the federal government. The governor also took time to urge Coloradoans, especially older residents, to sign up for the COVID-19 vaccine, saying, quote, It is so easy and painless. If you're over 70, please get it, end quote. Polis also added that three quarters of people aged 70 and older in Colorado have been vaccinated as of. A new unit within Fort Collins Police Services has been formed to focus on mental health response. According to Sadie Swanson at the Coloradoan, the new mental health response team is made up of two existing Fort Collins police officers who have been partnering with the UC Health Community Outreach, Response, and Engagement team since January, according to a news release. The CORE team includes community par paramedic Julie Bauer and co-responder and community programs coordinator Stephanie Bocco. Bocco said in a news release that, quote, Mental health issues are often complex. Resolving them requires a partnership approach. Simply sending a social worker to address these issues isn't the answer. The unfortunate reality is that people in crisis can exhibit behaviors that put themselves and others at risk. Having a multidisciplinary team of compassionate professionals that allows us to safely help people access the resources they need. The mental health response team is the third version of the Fort Collins co-responder program, first launched in July 2018. Baca was initially hired as a full-time co-responder. In 2019, Baca was joined by Bauer and the program moved under UC Health. The hope is that the mental health response team will help those in a mental health crisis appro appropriate care, avoid unnecessary involvement of hospitals and emergency rooms, and reduce incarceration for incidents related to mental illness, according to the news release. Community members can request the mental health response team when they call police for something related to a mental health situation, according to the police. If a team member is not available to respond, a patrol officer will respond instead and send a referral to the team if requested. Depending on the situations and person's needs, a mental health response team officer or co-responder can follow up later. All Fort Collins police officers receive ongoing training on mental health response, and about a third of officers are CIT certified, according to the news release. CIT is a nationally recognized model designed to help people with behavioral health conditions access treatment instead of placing them in the criminal justice system, according to police. My name is Ivy Winfrey, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU. We'll be right back with more of the Rocky Mountain Review. Hi, I'm DJ Sammy B. And I'm DJ Fruit Guts. And, and we're, we're the, the music, music directors, directors here at KCSU. KCSU. 
Tune in on Wednesdays from 3 to 4 p.m. for our show, Hidden Gems. Where we bring you the freshest new music that's being added to our station. So make sure to check us out if you want to be the first to hear what's new at KCSU. Lawson, and you're tuned into the RMR Sports Report for Thursday, February 11th. First off, we are going to begin talking about men's basketball. They were supposed to have a game on Tuesday, 9 p.m. against New Mexico. That was canceled, as well as tonight's game against New Mexico. It has also been postponed um, due to COVID protocols. Looking ahead towards Friday and Saturday, volleyball, or excuse me, Volleyball will be playing uh, at 7 o'clock against Nevada in Nevada, but before that we were supposed to have softball games at 9.30 and 12 um, down at the Texas Classic. Those have both been canceled as well due to COVID. And taking a look at 1 p.m., we will have women's basketball going up against New Mexico in Moby Arena. Looking ahead to Saturday, once again, the softball games have been canceled. Women's basketball will have the second of their doubleheader game at 1 p.m in Moby Arena, as well as volleyball will have their second doubleheader against Nevada at 7 p.m. You can tune in to the Mountain West Network to catch all of that. Although we have a little bit of a shorter recap this week, there aren't, uh, you know, with all the games getting canceled, not too much to talk about. So be sure to tune in next week on Tuesday to catch all of the RMR action live here at 90.5 KCSU FM Fort Collins. My name is Ben Dixon Lawson, and I wish you all a great rest of your day. Today, I am joined by Rick Parker of the Loveland Rotary Club Duck Race Executive Committee, here to talk with us about the annual Loveland Rotary Club Duck Race Fundraiser. Mr. Parker, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Ivy. It's great to be here. So, for our listeners who haven't ever heard of the Duck Race, what is it? It's a fundraiser that the Loveland Rotary Club conducts every year. It's a a fun way to raise money for good causes. What we do is we sell uh, tickets uh, that uh, are um, connected to individual ducks that we race down the river. We put about 7,000 little ducks, little yellow ducks into the Big Thompson River in August and uh, the winning duck wins a prize. There are lots of prizes donated by area merchants um, and we use that money to uh, uh, support the community in Loveland, support the schools, support uh, uh, this year we're very much uh, supporting businesses that have been impacted, uh, actually I should say nonprofits that have been impacted by uh, COVID so that uh, we're able to to really help out the community. 
We also provide scholarships for um, uh, high school students in the Thompson School District and um, generally just try to do good stuff in the community. Adjacent to the race itself, we, um, we all also offer an opportunity to sponsors uh, area businesses that uh, might want to sponsor, contribute to uh, our fundraiser by decorating a large duck, which is then entered into a decorated duck contest. So we have uh, categories like uh, the, the people's choice, uh, best name, best theme, and uh, the winners of that just basically win bragging rights, but it's a fun way to involve uh, employees and, and again, help out the community. Uh, and for clarification, these are rubber ducks, not real ducks, right? They are rubber ducks. You're right. And it's a fun event uh, um, to, to watch. We uh, live streamed it last year and uh, we'll be recording it again this year um, because, you know, to see a mass of, of thousands of ducks floating down the river and then people with big nets catching them at the finish line is, is just a fun activity. Um, so... Uh, would you be able to give us some history uh, about the duck race, like um, how it got started and uh, maybe some of the developments over the years? Well, uh, it, it, um, it, I'm afraid I don't, uh, I'm, I'm, I don't have uh, top of mind some, an actual date when it was started, but uh, it's, uh, it's a, kind of activity that many Rotary clubs around the country use to raise funds. And our club's been doing it for, for several decades. Um, and uh, it's, it's expanded over the, over the years. And, and in fact, uh, oh, uh, about uh, seven or eight years ago, we started the decoration contest, uh, which was a significant uh, addition to the fundraising activities. Uh, the 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 money is given to our uh, Loveland Foundation, and they're the ones that pass that money on to the the schools to buy Chromebooks or other technology to assist uh, remote learning and even learning in the classroom when kids are back in the classroom. And uh, and what we've given money to over the years has changed a little bit too. It just depends on the needs in the community. Uh, for our listeners don't know, would you be able to tell us what um, what a rot Rotary Club is and what y'all do there? Yeah, sure. Great question. Uh, a Rotary Club is a, is a service club of men and women who come together to uh, enjoy some fellowship. Uh, we, we meet on Tuesdays um, and um, have a lunch together and watch a program, but the main focus of our activity is uh, helping the community. And the motto of, of the Rotary Club is service before self. So a Rotary Club, like other kinds of service clubs, the Lions, the Elks, uh, and others, is it's just men and women in the community that, uh, that, that want to do something for um, you know, other organizations to, to help. So I understand that uh, last year the uh, duck race had to be held remotely and live streamed. Um, are there going to be any changes this year compared to last year? Yeah, this year we um, 
we're really going to have to move on two tracks. Um, being able to uh, um, sell tickets and uh, engage with people in the community at the various summer events that Loveland holds, such as Loveland Loves Barbecue or Arts in the Park or the Corn Roast Festival, is a wonderful opportunity. We generally have booths and those uh, summer events. Um, we don't know at this point whether things are going to open up sufficiently that those summer events are going to be held. So we have to both be prepared to conduct business as we used to conduct it back before uh, COVID, uh, but also be prepared, uh, in fact, uh, if there aren't mass gatherings. Um, last year, we added uh, an appearance at the... At the um, uh, farmers market in Loveland, which was a, a wonderful way to reach out to some people. Um, so we'll we'll be we'll be doing more virtually. You know, we beefed up our our uh, online presence, our, our both our web page and our social social media presence last year, and we're just going to double down on that again this year to try to engage with people and get the word out uh, through. Uh, social media, but, but also uh, radio and newspaper and other ways. So we'll just be doing everything we can possibly think of to reach people and share the message of what we're trying to do. When, where is the duck race happening? The duck race will happen uh, the afternoon of August 21st. Um, and we'll have, we'll actually put the ducks in the water at uh, um on the Big Thompson and the uh, end line is at Fairgrounds Park, which is there in Loveland. Um, and uh, it'll, I don't know if I already said this, but four o'clock in the afternoon. It's usually held in conjunction with the Corn Roast Festival. Again, we don't really know if the Corn Roast Festival is going to be August 20th and 21st this year. But regardless, we will, we will raise ducks. The ducks will race on August 21st. Where can our listeners find out more about the Duck Race and the Loveland Rotary Club? Well, they can find out more about the Loveland Rotary Club at uh, lovelandrotary.com. Uh, but there's also a specific uh, web page for the Duck Race at uh, lovelandduckrace.com. And we're also on Facebook. Uh, and uh, um, so if, they, if that's their preference, they can check us out there. All right, that is all the questions I have. Um, again, I've been speaking with uh, Rick Parker, a member of the Loveland Rotary Club Duck Race Executive Committee. Mr. Parker, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Ivy. Have a great day.
Support for KCSU comes from the Lisa Rinkjob Agency Incorporated with American Family Insurance, with offices located in Fort Collins and Greeley. Protection, peace of mind, and trust has been their priority since 1992. Learn more about Lisa Rinkjob Agency Incorporated and American Family Insurance at lisarinkjob at ampfam.com. And we are back on the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Coda Babcock, and this is National News Highlights for Thursday. President Joe Biden called Chinese President Xi Jinping for the first time while serving as president Wednesday. According to Amer Marani of the Associated Press, Biden discussed trade, democracy activism in China, and human rights concerns. In a statement released by the White House, it says that Biden showed concerns surrounding Chinese economic practices and human rights issues against the Uyghur ethnic minority in the western Xinjiang province of China. Biden posted on Twitter, quote, I told him I will work with China when it benefits the American people, end quote. And Chinese media have shown mostly positive responses following the conversation between the leaders. Jinping is said to have pushed back against Biden's concerns related to human rights, saying that the U.S. should be cautious when it comes to Chinese interests. A new Lancet Commission report found that 40% of COVID-19 deaths in the U.S. could have been prevented when compared to other industrialized nations. According to Ken Altucker of USA Today, the Lancet Commission on Public Policy and Health faults former President Donald Trump for the U.S.'s poor response to COVID-19. This percentage is based mostly on mortality rates in Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, and the United Kingdom. The report also said that the poor mortality rate from the virus has deeper roots within the U.S.'s general health trends, particularly health inequality. Black Americans are significantly more likely to die from COVID-19, and crowded living conditions and jobs without social distance abilities may be to blame for another portion of deaths, particularly associated with low-income jobs. In addition to this, the nation's lack of universal mask mandates also created new issues as the Trump administration failed to create legislation requiring any preventative practices. Health outcomes were also harmed overall by an increase in uninsured Americans within the former president's term, not including those who lost employer health insurance during the pandemic. A Georgia state district attorney is investigating former President Donald Trump's phone call in an attempt to pressure the Georgia Secretary of State to overturn their election results in November. According to Stephen Fowler from Georgia Public Broadcasting and National Public Radio, a criminal probe was launched into the event in which former pre- the former president contacted Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to find more votes in support of Trump. Fulton County District Attorney's Office is now handling this investigation, and this county does include Atlanta. Fulton District Attorney Fannie Willis said that the investigation will look into how the former president broke Georgia's state laws. These laws include, but are not limited to, quote, the solicitation of election fraud, the making of false statements to state and local government bodies, conspiracy, racketeering, and violation of the oath of office, end quote. The hour-long call to the Georgia Secretary of State by Trump was obtained by Georgia Public Broadcasting and records the former president pressuring Raffensperger to toss out the correct results and find over 11,800 votes to re-elect him. The U.S. Senate is moving into the third day of the impeachment trial for former U.S. President Donald Trump. Impeachment managers from the U.S. House of Representatives are continuing their arguments to the Senate. Wednesday, their arguments included new footage from the attack on the Capitol, which shows how close the attackers were to senators. The third day of proceedings began Thursday at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 
and senators took a vote on whether or not the trial was constitutional prior to the proceedings. Impeachment managers are given up to two days to present their case against the former president and his defense team is given the same time to give their defense of Trump's actions. The House of Representatives impeached Trump on January 13th, but the Senate was slower in putting the trial onto the agenda. Five people died at the riot in the U.S. Capitol, and two police officers died by suicide the first few days following the attack. That's all for national news. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. KCSU wants to hear your voice. Call us and tell us about the underrepresented or misrepresented people and events in Black history and what you think should be more well-known. You can leave us a voicemail at 970-491-2388. Again, that's 970-491-2388 for the chance to be featured in another episode of the Rocky Mountain Review. Now, we're going to be listening to some parts of the first episode of In the Trenches with Ellison Hubbard. Hubbard's a fourth-year football player for the Colorado State Rams. Sports is his passion, and he comes from a family of four and always works to be a role model for his younger sister. He's studying journalism here at CSU and plans to work with Fox or ESPN post-graduation as a broadcaster or anchor. Now, let's hear from Ellison Hubbard. In the Trenches with Ellison Hubbard takes a deep dive into playing defensive line at whether it's the middle school level, the high school level, or the collegiate level. And just giving them knowledge, that's what I want to do, is give them knowledge on how to use your hands, feet, eyes, and just have that, that grit to get back there and make that sack or make that tackle for loss in the backfield. When I, when I take, talk about my first episode, which is Defense Line 101, it's basically just you know, telling you how to use your eyes, how you view the field, how you view the offense alignment and see, you know, what kind of stance they're in, if it's a run or pass, or basically what uh what what their what their formation is. If you if you really studied film, what play they might do. And uh whether it's pass, play action or power or inside run, something like that. When you look at the feet, you gotta make sure your feet are nice width apart when you're in your stance, which is another part of the Defensive line 101 is getting your stance, making sure that you have the right stance, you have that powerful get-off. And if your feet are good and staggered, then you can get off the ball. But if your feet aren't staggered, you're kind of lopsided, and it's kind of hard for you to get that good get-off to beat that offensive lineman. And then when your hands, which are the most important thing, I believe, when you use your hands, it, it, it's a constant battle between you and the offensive lineman. If you have strong, powerful hands, quick hands, you can get that offensive lineman off of you because he's already going backwards. So that's what <clears throat> the first defensive line one-on-one uh, in the trenches with Ellison Hubbard, that's what it's about. And I want to spread that knowledge to younger guys and even people my age so when they want to take that next level shot, they have this information down. That's kind of how I took this episode, I took this podcast, and I, and I made it that way. And in my next episode of talking about Aaron Donald, one of the greatest defensive linemen there is today. Um, I just kind of use what I said in the first episode and just apply it to Aaron Donald because he does it every game. So that's basically the premises of In the Trenches is everybody <clears throat> needs to know how to use your hands, eyes, feet, and have that right stance.
Welcome to the first episode of In the Trenches with Ellison Hubbard. Uh, of course, I am Ellison Hubbard, so this podcast is specialized to take a deep dive into the playing of defensive line. You know, I play defensive line for the Colorado State Rams, so it is my pleasure to give you guys a little inside of playing the defensive line, being in those trenches for four quarters. We will break down some of the greatest players in this history and all their special moves and what they do great to get sacks on quarterbacks. If you're a young football player or if you're a historian of the game, you want to sit back and listen and enter the trenches as I will give you the four, four most important things that the D lineman must have when playing in the trenches. Today's first episode is a one-on-one for playing defense a lot. Of course, as I said before, I am a defense alignment for Colorado State. And I just want to give you a little bio of how I played defense line and how I got here to Colorado State. So I played football when I was six years old, believe it or not. And I've always uh, loved playing football. Now, when I played football, I started off playing offense line. So, you know, on the other side of the trenches, and it was it was a lot different. You had to hike the ball and you had to block somebody. You weren't using any moves or anything. You were trying to knock somebody off the ball so you can get the ball going up the field. Eventually, I moved over to defensive line, and then I started to, you know, play my play my hardest, but I didn't really have any fundamentals, no, no techniques. Going into high school, I, I started to become better and better, and I started to get recruited, I started to get looked at by coaches and get scholarships. I had 23 of them. And, you know, playing defensive line isn't easy, especially as I am a six-foot defensive lineman. So it's not easy for a guy my size to even get looked at. And it's just about my explosiveness and using my hands that got me where I am today. And so far, I have 15 sacks on the season. But that's just off of playing with straight technique, fundamentals, stance, hands, eyes, and feet. Like I said, if you're a young player, and want to bang heads, there are important fundamentals to keep in mind. Stance, hands, eyes, and feet. It's all about the get-off when you're in your stance. If your stance is, is too wide or if it's too narrow, it's kind of hard for you to get off the ball and blow that defender up. So what you need to do is get your feet at a nice shoulder-width apart. Get your knees bent. Always bend down before you get in your stance because you can't just bend over and get in your stance because then you don't know if you're going to fall off or not. If you know you're about to fall over on your hands, that's how you know that you're in a good defensive stance. So get, get in your shoulder width apart stance, bend your knees at 90 degrees, bend over, hand out in front of your eyes, make sure that you're leaning on your fingertips so you feel like you're about to fall or break your fingers. That's how I know that I'm in a good stance. And then bam, you are in a good position to get off the ball low, have that good leverage, your back is flat, your back is flat, your knees are bent, your hands are put in the right position. Your hands always have to come from the ground up. If your hands are coming ground to the shoulder pads, you're not hitting the person in the right in the right spot. You have to hit him right in the number, right in the chest. Let him feel that. So when you come off the ball, you are hitting it right in his chest plate so he can't put his hands in your chest plate. That's how you know you've won. So when the D lineman comes off the ball, It'll be like, that's looks like that all the time. That means you're hitting him first. If he hits you first, you didn't come off the ball, you didn't use your head. And, and most defenders, what they struggle to do is they like to use their forearm. And the forearm doesn't help you in any, any way. It, there's no power coming with your forearm. What you want to do, you want to practice 
make sure you have a pad or something in front of you and you're just jabbing the pad your thumbs need to be up hitting the chest plate hitting the chest plate repeatedly so you know that you have your hands in that right spot so when you come off the ball you're hitting it right in this chest plate and as always remember you gotta bend your knees get over with your hand put a, put your hand on the ground lean it on your fingertips make sure all your weights on your fingertips your feet are a nice shoulder width apart when you come off that ball hands right in the chest plate as simple as that it's like making a cake those few steps right there you got two more steps but that's how you do it right there so we just went over the stance and the hands now we're going to go over the eyes and the feet the eyes are the most important thing i believe when playing d-line the only reason i believe that the eyes are the most important is because your eyes lead you to where the ball is and sometimes the eye leads you to your right gap if your eyes are pointed down in the A gap when you're supposed to be in the B gap, then you're going to definitely go in the A gap and then give up that hole. And that's the linebacker's gap is the A gap. So you have to play in your B gap. Keep your eyes in that B gap. So when you come off the ball, you jab him in his chest, you have to make sure your eyes are in that B gap. Or if you're in the A gap, then your eyes need to be in the A gap. Your eyes need to be in the C gap or D gap. Just keep your eyes in that gap because that ball carrier might come into your gap and if your eyes aren't focused on him then that's where the hole is and that's where he's gone for 60. so make sure when you're looking in your gap you have the guy extended and you're looking you're making sure you're seeing if the running back's going to do a cutback or something don't don't get distracted by his movements in there because running backs like the juke they like to get out of there they don't like to be in that mess so if you if, if you lock him out and you're looking and he's like juking back there and you, you want to take your eyes out of your gap that he can hit your gap right there. And I had some of those experiences where I took my eyes out of my gap and then I run it back, hit it right there. That's a huge problem because it makes the coaches look like they don't know how they're coaching. So you make sure you guys keep your eyes in your gap. It's a responsibility. It's a part of playing D-line. It's gap sound with your eyes. And then that's when it leads to your feet. If your feet are buzzing, you're not getting moved off the ball. If you're chopping your feet, your eyes are in the gap, you're looking for that running back, then if he makes a move to another gap, you're able to shed, shred that dude off with your feet moving, buzzing, eyes moving, looking, and you're running to the ball to make the play. All comes in hand. When your stance is good, you come off the ball and strike somebody with your hands, then you have your eyes in your gap, and you're looking, you're scanning, you're making sure that he's not coming right to your gap. If he bounces anywhere else, your feet are buzzing so you don't get moved, and then you take the guy off of you, bam, you're making that sack or that making that, that TFL, you're making that tackle, add to your stats. It's a huge part to playing the defense a lot. If you can't have your stance right, you're already, already messed up. You're already down. You're already behind the eight ball. And that's how it leads to your hands. Good stance, good hands. Good eyes, good feet. <laughs> that's the four fundamentals to playing defense a lot. And I, and I want to tell you, that's just for the run game. When it comes to pass, there's three things that go with that. It's your get off, move, finish. Your get off goes with your stance. If you have a good stance, you can have a good get off. And you're running up the field. That's what you do when you get off the ball. You're running up the field, making the defender scared. Oh my gosh, he's quick off the ball. What do I do? How do I block him? Then you have the move. The move doesn't come if you can't get the get off. So if the person's beating him up the field because he has a good stance, he had a good get off up the field, then you can make that move. The guard is either going to get beat inside or you're going to beat him right up the field with a speed rush. If you beat him with a speed rush up the field, bam, he, he got beat. It's over with. Or if he's silver setting you, bam, inside. And then once you get that move, you have the finish. And that finish is getting the sack, making the play, celebrating with your teammates. So let me go into detail of the two types of rushes you have. You have the speed rush, 
and the other bull rush. The speed rush is really for the DNs on the outside rushing the tackles. That's because they're a little bit faster than us, the guys on the inside. You know, they're much lighter, and their 40s are probably a 4.5. So that's why they've got the speed rush. The speed rush is really, is really simple, so easy to do. You just get off the ball because you have that good stance. You're ready to get off the ball. You just jet up field as fast as you can. And that offensive tackle, because, you know, they're going backwards trying to catch up with you, it's easy. You're just blowing right past, picking up the towel. That means touching the ground, hitting the grass, fit in the corner, and that's how you get the sack. Speed rush is so simple. And not it's not easy, because most people get up the field, get off the ball like that. It's really hard to do a speed rush. But for a bull rush, I think anybody can do it if they have the, the, the might, the power, the grit inside of them to want to blow that defender off the ball. If you get off the ball and you know you're, you're getting upfield and the guard is scared and he's on his feet, he's tumbling, he's he doesn't know what to do, bam, you hit him right there, bam, bam, in the mouth, in the in the throat, in the chin, and he's going to go backwards. He's going to either fall or you're going to push him right in the quarterback's lap and get that sack. The bull rush I like because you're showing your dominance over the offensive player. <laughs> when you get off the ball and you hit him in his chin, in his mouth, He's, he's like, oh, my gosh, he's winning, you know? And then he can't do anything unless you're playing a good guard and knows how to recover. But most people can't handle a bull rush. Now, the only downfall of that is your stamina. But if, you know, you can D-lineman have a good stamina, it, it won't be that much of a factor. So it's either the speed rush for the guys on the edge usually and the bull rush for the guys on the inside. It's so simple. So right now I want to go back to the eyes part because that is the most important part of the four fundamentals for the defensive line. When you're looking for the ball carrier, there's sometimes you get a play action or a halfback draw or a QB draw. When you get a halfback draw or QB draw, it's usually a delayed handoff and the O-lineman is trying to get you upfield because he thinks you won. He's letting you think you won. So don't fall for that. Make sure your eyes, if he just lets you go upfield, that's how you know that it could be a draw or a screen. When it comes to play action, that's a little bit difficult. Sometimes the play action, they give you a hard run block double teams and all and that's when you have to really have good eyes if you know you're getting double team but there's like all the guys bunched up right there all five linemen sitting right there on the line of scrimmage then you know that's a pass because they're not moving anybody anywhere they're just holding you up right there on the line of scrimmage you got to make sure you're looking if something doesn't seem right you're just holding on in there and you see in the backfield the quarterbacks running back there dropping make sure you get your eyes right and fight for you fight for your life to get back there and get that set it's not easy it's really difficult, but you have to have good eyes. If you have good eyes, you'll read the draws, you'll read the screens, you'll read the play actions. And, and to mention the screens, the screens, those are a little difficult too. When the old lineman hits you in the back, throws you up the field because you're getting off the ball, you got the good stance, hands, eyes, and feet, and they push you up the field, then you got to stop. Buzz your feet look left to right because usually the running back is running right under you. That's how you can pick the ball off and get you a pick six. Now, some of us are kind of slow, so we get hot down. But if you have those good eyes, you'll see that that running back's coming up right under you. And you just pick the ball off right there. Or you make that big play that the coachman wanted you to make all practice. You have just passed the one-on-one on being a defensive lineman. I'm also going to let you know a little secret on what defensive linemen do and have in their souls. It's called grit. Tune in next episode to hear about grit and one of the greatest defensive linemen to ever have this grit and to play today's game. I'll break him down. For KCSU Sports, I'm Ellison Hubbard. Go get paid.
You just heard from Ellison Hubbard, the host of In the Trenches with Ellison Hubbard. His podcast is featured online at kcsufm.com. You can also find it on Spotify. And we are going to just take a quick break and we'll be right back with COVID-19 news. Lives Through Music is a local nonprofit serving the areas of Larimer and Weld counties. They are dedicated to helping underprivileged youth heal from the isolation caused by COVID-19 by providing access to musical instruments, workshops, and mentors. More information is available on their website at amplifylives.org. That's A-M-P-L-I-F-Y-L-I-V-E-S dot O-R-G. And we are back on the Rocky Mountain Review. You just heard some of the first episode of In the Trenches with Ellison Hubbard and some details about the KCSU-hosted podcast. I'm Coda Babcock, and this is COVID-19 Updates for Thursday. Colorado State University has a cumulative total of nearly 2,100 cases of COVID-19 among students, staff, and faculty since May. Cases have mostly plateaued for the university, with no real spike or decrease in cases in the past month or so. Larimer County is at medium risk for COVID-19 transmission and is currently rated at a level yellow concern on the state's dial framework. In the past 24 hours, there have been over 60 new cases of COVID-19. In the past two weeks, every single day has seen at least 15 new cases, but no day has seen over 10% of tests administered come back positive. The county's 14-day case rate is over 240 per 100,000 residents, which is considered high. 22 COVID patients are currently in the hospital. Overall hospital utilization is at 69%, and ICU utilization is at 75%. The county is continuing on a downward trend, but there are over 18,400 cases and 200 deaths in the county, which has 331 outbreaks. Nearly 55,000 people have been vaccinated for COVID-19 in Larimer County. The state of Colorado has over 400,000 cases, and there have been over 5,700 deaths among cases. There are 3,700 outbreaks statewide, and over 2.4 million people have been tested for the virus that causes COVID-19. The state asks that residents opt in to COVID-19 exposure notifications on their smartphones, which use Bluetooth to notify you if someone you've been in contact with tests positive. For those interested in vaccinations, you can visit covid19.colorado.gov slash vaccine or call 1-877-COVAXCO. Nationwide, there are over 27.3 million cases of COVID-19 and over 470,000 deaths. New cases, deaths, and hospitalizations are all down by more than 20% each. And Wednesday, nearly 100,000 people tested positive for COVID-19. Over 3,000 people died of COVID-19, and more than 75,000 were hospitalized. The Centers for Disease Control has announced that double masking may offer additional protection against COVID-19 transmission. Double masking involves wearing a medical-grade surgical mask under a a cloth facial covering. A well-fitting mask also prevents transmission as less particles can escape through gaps. For surgical masks, a knot can be tied 
to limit these gaps. The only way for those not yet eligible for the COVID-19 vaccine to protect themselves and others from virus transmission and complications is by washing your hands for 20 seconds regularly, wearing a surgical grade face mask or a cloth face covering, avoiding touching your face, and staying at home when possible. Information from this segment was gathered from the CSU COVID site, Larimer County, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, the New York Times, and the Centers for Disease Control. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. If you missed any of our show so far, check us out at Spotify or online at kcsufm.com news. We'll be right back with tech and weird news. Hello. Hey, so I'm having some trouble with my streaming service. Please select from the following options. Can I just talk to a person? Sorry, that is not an option. Please select from the following options. Seriously? You called? No, no, not you. I'm just sick of robots, and I just want to listen to some music. You know what? This is DJ Silent G, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins, operated by actual human beings. And we are back on the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Coda Babcock, and this is Tech News for Thursday. Bitcoin jumped to an all-time high of nearly $48,500 Thursday. According to Reuters, this occurred after the Bank of New York Mellon embraced cryptocurrency usage. Bitcoin jumped by more than 8% in value, and the digital assets program by BNY Mellon is expected to have new offerings later this year. The last spike Bitcoin had was by 5.7% at nearly $47,400 earlier this week. Dating app Bumble priced its stock at $43 on Wednesday. According to CNN Business, Bumble is a woman-owned application and its price announcement is considered high profile. Upon its first trades, shares immediately increased up to $76, nearly double the original set price. Bumble has made its mark in the world of dating apps through networking and friendship options, Bumble Biz and Bumble BFF. Bumble's board is mostly made up of women, meaning that its soaring stock price shows a new success for women-led tech companies. Volkswagen announced that they're using Microsoft's cloud to move forward with their plans for self-driving vehicles. According to Stephen Nellis from Reuters, Volkswagen is working on self-driving and driver assistance features for Volkswagen, Audi, and Porsche vehicles. Prior to Thursday's announcement, this work was done independently through a software called Car.Software to collaborate between Volkswagen and its affiliate companies on developing the necessary components. Their new deal with Microsoft is expected to make updating software on these vehicles easier, and this means that additional features could be added to self-driving vehicles whenever needed. The Biden administration may be preparing for a new executive order to address a global shortage in semiconductor chips. According to Chaim Gottenberg at The Verge, this would allow for a supply chain review to occur and assist in the development of better strategies for the future. The shortage comes as a result of both a spike in demand for devices like laptops during the pandemic, as well as changes in production speed during COVID-19. Former President Donald Trump may also have exacerbated this issue with his trade war on China, who is the primary producer of these chips. The exact plans for speeding up production are unclear, as the U.S. does not generally produce these chips. 
That's all for tech news. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. Now, for weird news with my co-host, Ivy Winfrey. Hello there, my name is Ivy Winfrey. And sometimes we need to get a little bit weird with it. So here's some of the weirdest stories I found from around the world today, only on the Rocky Mountain Review. A 90-year-old man spent $10,000 to put two ads in the Wall Street Journal to tell AT&T CEO about his slow internet service. According to Catherine Park at Fox 29 Philadelphia, Aaron M. Epstein said that the quality of his internet speeds have been subpar for years, saying, quote, For the past five years, as soon as they started introducing streaming like Roku and movies on TV, my internet service, although I was paying for 3.5 megabytes per second, sometimes was only up to 1.5 megabytes per second. So watching a mo- movie through Roku was slideshows, end quote. Epstein, who lives in North Hollywood, said he decided to purchase both ads because he had been hounding the company about the estimated time of arrival for their fiber optics. The fiber optics, notably, were heavily advertised in the previous months. While the company remained polite and courteous, according to Epstein, the upgraded services did not seem to be coming to his area anytime soon, so he decided to make a last-ditch effort to not only bring faster internet options to himself, but to his community as well. Epstein paid $10,000 for two ads in the Wall Street Journal. One ad ran in Dallas, Texas, where AT&T is headquartered, and the other ran in Manhattan. Epstein hoped the New York City ad would encourage investors on Wall Street to pressure AT&T to take action. The ads ran on Wednesday, February 3rd, and that same morning, at around 11 a.m., Epstein received a call from a spokesperson who directly represents the president of AT&T. The spokesperson took down all of Epstein's information and said they would see what they could do to help move things along. Epstein said he is now waiting for further communication. AT&T said in a statement that the company is continuing to enhance and invest in their wireless services and networks and have already spent $3.1 billion in the Los Angeles area as of 2019, but they did not comment on the progress of Epstein's specific issue. The cryptocurrency Bitcoin now consumes more electricity than the entire nation of Argentina. According to the BBC, One analysis from Cambridge University suggests that the electricity consumed by Bitcoin mining is worth 121 terawatt hours per year. This amount constitutes more than the entire energy consumption of the country of Argentina. Argentina, for context, has a population of 44 million people. If Bitcoin had nation status, it would be in the top 30 countries in terms of electricity consumption. According to the report, the electricity used in a year could power every single electric tea kettle in the UK for 27 years. However, the report also notes the amount of electricity consumed by every always-on device in the United States, always-on devices being devices that run processes all the time, such as Google Home or Amazon Alexa, is the same amount that is consumed by Bitcoin mining. In order to mine Bitcoin, specialized computers are connected to the cryptocurrency network. They verify transactions made by people who send or receive Bitcoin. This process involves solving puzzles, which provides a hurdle to ensure no one fraudulently edits the global record of all transactions. As a reward, miners occasionally receive small amounts of Bitcoin in what is often likened to a lottery. The mining presents an environmental problem. As David Gerard, author of The Attack of the 50-Foot Blockchain, explains, quote, 
Bitcoin is literally anti-efficient, so more efficient mining hardware won't help. It'll just be competing against other efficient mining hardware. This means that Bitcoin's energy use, and hence its CO2 production, only spirals outwards. It's very bad that all this energy is being literally wasted in a lottery, end quote. Gerard suggested that a carbon tax on cryptocurrencies could be introduced to balance out some of the negative consumption. That's all the weird news I have for today. Hey, this is Mars Williams from Liquid Soul. You're listening to the eclectic sounds of KCSU. And now for the weather. As we know, today was pretty cold out with a high of 28 and a low of 2 degrees. And we also saw some snow this morning, which may continue into this afternoon and evening. Tomorrow will cool off even more to a high of 12 and a low of 2 with a 20% chance of snow. This weekend, you can expect some snow in time for Valentine's Day with a high of 10 degrees and a low of negative 5 on Saturday with snow showers throughout the day, but especially in the evening. Sunday, you can expect a cold high of 7 degrees with a low of negative 11 with snow showers until the afternoon. Following Valentine's Day weekend, the sun will come out a bit on Monday and snow showers are expected to stop. You can expect a high of 20 and a low of 8 degrees that day with mild winds. Tuesday, the snow will return in the afternoon, and temperatures will peak at 41 degrees with a low of 15. And for Wednesday, you'll just have to tune in to the Rocky Mountain Review on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins next Tuesday from 4 to 5 p.m. And that's all for today. We just wanted to thank Damien Castile for our amazing theme music that's playing right now. We'd like to thank our guests today, as well as Thomas Taylor, Asher Korn, Stephanie Keel, Hannah Copeland, Addison Lambert, Elliot Hutchinson, Jonathan Gillum, Ben Kruger, Ben Haney, Dixon Lawson, Peter Walk, Taylor Sandal, and the rest of the staff here at KCSU and Rocky Mountain Student Media. We couldn't do this without you. And I'd like to thank you, Coda. And I'd like to thank you, Ivy. And finally, we couldn't do this without you, dear listener. Thank you. And with that, we'll see you next time.